Your happiest spring starts with Lowe's because Spring Fest is happening now to help get you everything you need to celebrate the season. Come on into Lowe's and save on select appliances. Right now, you can get free basic install via rebate with purchase of select items $5.99 or more. We're celebrating spring with more fun and more savings. Create a season full of happiness at Lowe's. Home to any budget, home to any possibility. Excludes Connecticut and Rhode Island. Appliance offer restrictions and other fees may apply. See store for details while supplies last. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomenon, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, The X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember Exxon Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. I uh, usually start with a bit of a rant. I don't know why I started that, but I have started it. But today I'm really not going to rant about much of anything other than to mention that the curse of Oak Island, I think, has pretty well explained what's happened there. But I had an interesting thought this morning. Um, there had been stories of lights on the uh, Oak Island for many, many years prior to the boys going out there in 1795. And I think that was the British military out there. And I got to thinking about that. If the British military was there, the Navy, and it was some kind of naval installation there, which seems to be what they're proving, if somebody had actually buried treasure on the island and they came back some years later to find it and they found a whole naval installation there, they pretty well had screwed themselves out of their treasure. I don't think that's what happened, but I don't think there was never a treasure there. I think it all relates to the British, but that's a whole other argument. I had a, a happy personal note. I got a book called The Best of Blue Book, The Best of Project Blue Book. It's going to be published on April 1st. And I have another book that is due on April 1st. And I'm wondering if that maybe isn't some kind of a um, omen about the books. Anyhow, The Best of Blue Book is looking at the uh, Project Blue Book files, some of the better cases. But rather than stopping with just what was in the Project Blue Book files, 
I'm able to add the decades of other information to the, to the cases and come up with uh, some better conclusions about that. And the other thing I wanted to say is I recently uh, spoke with Brenda McKirkland, who was on this program a number of years ago. She is the lady at the Special Collections at the University of, Iowa, uh, University of Arlington, at, in University of Arlington, Texas. And um, she told me that after she had appeared on the program, she had gotten a call from somebody in Texas that had some documents that they wanted to donate to the special collections. And she thanked me for opening up that avenue of communication, I guess, with this person. And I thought that was kind of neat that we actually did something good for the University of Texas at Arlington uh, about that. So I am uh, going to be joined here with Robert Colford. He has been with the post office for more than 36 years. He has been interested in the UFO subject since he was a young boy. He has read through lots of files from the UFO program and after several years of research has found essentially what he was looking for in the form of the Air, for De Air Defense Commands 45-5 for 6 February 1948 and 25 March 1948 and Air Force Regulation SAC Directive 200-2 for 25 March 1948. These are two examples that he believes demonstrate the importance placed on the flying disc subject, but also reinforce the 25 March date for the Aztec crash. And we'll get into that here. Um, there are several historic incidents that seem to corroborate the claims of a disc landing near Aztec on March 25, 1948. Robert, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, um, you're uh, talking about the Aztec UFO crash. And uh, what do you find is the most persuasive evidence that something actually happened there? Well, what I like to say, my position right now is all old information should be put on a shelf behind us and then start from this, that on that morning, that Thursday morning, General Carl Spots declared an emergency. And at the time, and in some historic publications, they try to make it sound like it was he was seriously worried that the Soviets or the Russians were about ready to launch a surprise attack on us. This, this warning is confirmed to have begun on that Thursday morning, March 25th, through uh, an interstaff memo between General Timberlake and General Anderson that confirmed that it was that Thursday morning. Now, we're talking about the, the date of the alleged crash at Aztec, New Mexico. That's, and that's exactly right. Yeah. And you're suggesting that the memos you're speaking of are a response to the information that came out of Aztec about that crash. Well, what, what I'm saying is what you can see with the evidence, the real evidence, you know, the, what we can look at, is that the, the emergency that General Spots declared... I tried my best to go through historical material, a lot from the CIA, and they didn't even know what General Spots was talking about. They were all scratching their heads. They couldn't figure out why he was so worked up. And this emergency, he declared, was a big deal because we didn't have enough air defense equipment in place to do what he wanted. And everything had, to, like a scramble had to take place where they had to get everything they had out of mothballs from the war and they started having to piece together something immediately, beginning that Thursday morning. So something big happened. The point, though, is in the air, the flying disc story is the documents that I found that were released along with this air defense emergency all have to do with flying discs and unconventional aircraft. But there is nothing that links it directly to Aztec. There is no document that says a flying disc landed on a mesa in New Mexico other than a report in 1966 that's interesting that I hope someday we could talk about because that's very weird. It's all the same information, only a report filed later in 1966. But the there's nothing that says directly that a flying disc landed. It's just that the evidence does suggest, more than just suggest, it shows clearly something that happened that had to do with flying discs occurred that morning and it was such a big deal that General Spots declared that emergency. That's what you can say definitively. Do we have any timing on the, day, the, the memos, when they came out, what time they were issued? 
Well, the first one that proves it was that morning is that inner staff memo between Anderson and Timberlake. And all we know so far is that it was that morning. It And it was uh, it was Kenneth Schaefel, the guy that wrote The Emerging Shield, that referenced that. So uh, I haven't read that one. But that would be the most important one for me to get a hold of, would be that memo. But he cites it when he cites the date. He cites that memo. So we do know that it was that. Oh, I say that because there is other information you could read about air defense history that will tell you that this alert happened on the 27th. But that's way off because I you can prove even with the CIA files. It was that Thursday morning. But uh, what I'm getting at here is um, Aztec, that, that Mesa at the Hart Canyon mm -hmm. is way off the beaten path. And I'm wondering how quickly they could have communicated information up to, uh, to the Pentagon, to uh, General Spatz's office, to talk about this. And that was why I asked about the timing of the memo. Yeah, but you know, it's funny, that same question is why I'm looking at that July 7th, 1947 edict from the Air Defense Command, <clears throat> because it couldn't have been William Rhodes that sponsored it, because they supposedly didn't find out until that article was written, was written about him. Well, let's so, let's back up a minute because we need to clarify a couple of terms here. William Rhodes was the Phoenix, Arizona guy who took two pictures of a flying disc over Phoenix on July seventh, nineteen forty-seven, and that was published in the um, uh, Phoenix newspapers at that time. And the Air Force became very interested in those photographs at one point. Right. And, the, and that's the, how they find out, found out about it, was supposedly through that article. And and the reason they were interested in it is the original description given of the craft that um, Kenneth Arnold had seen a, two weeks prior matched sort of the photographs taken by Rhodes. And there was an interesting discussion between a number of um, Air Force officers and Kenneth Arnold about that sort of thing and saying that the photograph that uh, Rhodes had taken was pretty well uh, what what. Arnold had seen. So you're referring to that specific incident, right? Right. And that in on that date, July 7th, that he had that sighting, supposedly, uh, an Air Defense Command uh, init uh, directive was issued just like the 45-5 on, on 25 March. So you see what I'm saying there? That, if you go in the Blue Book files, you'll see that someone... Uh, it's and and obviously uh, Professor Heineck read these because he's notated in the side margins. But you can see someone asked for information about the Oregon sightings on the fourth and anything up to the seventh. Someone initiated that, and it in so they also cite that ADC directive uh, for the July seventh. So I was wondering why the ADC direct you know offered that letter of directive on that date. It just happened to be that same date. Well, let me let me break us off right here because we're going to have to uh, go away for important announcements. Your website is www.runconventionalsky our our unconventional skies. It's all one word. Uh, yeah. Uh, our .com. I find you only can access it through Google Prime. I couldn't get through it or Google, uh, the the updated Google version. I couldn't get it on the normal normal Google. Uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and there'll be more information about our discussion here uh, up in a couple of days about that and a little bit more information. Uh, when we come back, we'll try to find out a little bit more about evidence for the Aztec New Mexico crash, other than directives that seem not to be uh, mentioning it directly. We will be back right after this with Robert Colford, so stick around. Patty Conklin grew up in Brooktondale, New York with a unique ability. Unlike others, she could see how the vibration of words and emotions affected the physical body. She discovered how to release stored emotion and facilitate healing. 
This began today's Conklin method of cellular cleansing. The private practice grew with tremendous results, as did her reputation. More and more people sought her out, bringing her into the home for healing. She soon realized she could even teach this to others, and they could shift perception and thus prevent illness from occurring. Patty Conklin quickly became a frequent keynote speaker, and she developed a curriculum for teaching the Conklin method of cellular cleansing. For more information, visit pattyconklin.com. P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N, pattyconklin.com, or call 404-474-0086. That's 404-474-0086. Mission Evolution is dedicated to the well-being of the planet and animals, as well as the evolution of humankind. One major factor threatening all three is increasing toxicity. Heavy metals and other environmental toxins are poisoning our bodies, deteriorating our brains, blocking our spiritual connection, and shortening our lives. Yet these poisons are extremely difficult to remove. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, and I recently became aware of a product created from the marriage of nature and nanotechnology called Vitality. It's formulated from zoolite, whose crystalline structure binds toxins, gently carrying them out of the body. The light is only as clear as the window through which it shines. Clear your body, shine your light into the world. Visit VitalityHappens.com for a 20% discount. Enter code PATHHOME. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. I am joined here by Robert Colford. His website is www.ourunconventionalskies.com, all one word, and you try to read that thing to Getting your mind breaks out the um, other words that are in buried in there. So it's www.ourunconventionalskies.com. I'll keep butchering that, I'm sure, all day because that's the way things are. When we went away, we were kind of talking about the Aztec crash. And Robert was telling us that um, there's some documents that relate to some kind of an activity called by uh, General Spatz, who was the, I think at the time he was... Um, one of the, uh, well, he was obviously one of the generals at the uh, in the Army Air Forces, or the Army, uh, or the Air Force, I should say, by that time was the, Ar- the Air Force. But um, what bothers me here is we do not have any documentation that specifically mentions the events in New Mexico on March 25th, 1948. Is that correct there, Robert? Yeah, none of the ones I'm saying, or nor, nor am I trying to imply that. I'm simply notating what's the obvious is why I bring up the witnesses, you know, why I wish to talk about them. Not because I'm pro them or against them, only that they exist and they, many of, or a few of them are sure about the date. So that intrigues me. But, um, so the Aztec crash is this idea that something had crashed on, in Hart Canyon near Aztec, New Mexico, which is what, 200 miles away from Roswell. Um, and it was recovered by the United States military. There were a number of people who are alleged to have been there to see the thing. What bothers me about this whole Aztec thing is the story apparently leaked into the public arena. And it came from a couple of con men. And that that makes me worry about the uh, credibility of the story. 
what 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 do you what is your take on all of that? Well, uh, the two comment thing is it doesn't really. That's like if you want to go that that's that Aztec story, and I say it that way because I even did. I'm not an expert in any of the minutia that has come before. I'm I'm like you or somebody else. Since I'm coming at it through the back door, I'm learning about that as I go and updating myself. But as far as that, I did read files on Silas Newton in the FBI uh, file has has a, a lot of information about it. But I also went through some old newspaper articles. Well, let me let me interrupt. Let me interrupt right here. And, and the reason I want to do that is because yeah. Silas Newton actually was a fascinating guy. Yeah. Um, to say the well educated, um, you could say an athlete. He played golf really, really well, and I think won some some pro-am tournaments and that sort of thing. Yeah. But he also seemed to have the attitude, if there were two ways to do something, a, a, the legitimate way to do it, and the con, he always went to the con. Well, see, I, I don't know that. I mean, reading the files, I saw, I read four cases the FBI had against him, and the three of them, the first three I read were ended up dropped because the people that were supposedly the victims weren't victims. So... That showed me that he, they were thinking obviously something about him, like he maybe he was a uh, notorious mobster that, or something, because that's kind of what they, it seems like they're trying to go after him, but I'm not really sure why some of the times, because you start the case and you're thinking, oh, this guy's, this guy's a done deal. And then you get through the, that case and they have to throw it out because they didn't have any evidence against him. And that happened the first two cases I read. So I thought, well, it seemed more like they think he's a mobster and they're trying to pin something on him. So maybe he was. I don't know. I don't know enough about him. He does kind of fit a profile that could be that. but And that would explain the FBI's unending trying to get at him. Well, I don't think I don't think of him as a mobster. I think of him as a con man. And a mobster, you think, is connected to organized crime. And a con man could be out there just having a good time making money by conning people. And he did get uh, convicted for running a con on a number of people in Colorado. Right, except, uh, I mean, that's true, but a con, he didn't get anything out of that con, which is odd, because that's what a con is about. You con somebody and you get something out of it. He didn't get anything but heartache out of it for the whole time. That's weird, but as far as the case goes, it also is true that Scully, Newton, and uh, I think one other person joined, they countersued and won. Right well, after. Wait, wait, wait. Let's let's identify the players here. Frank Scully is the guy who wrote Behind the Flying Saucers, which details the crash at uh, at Aztec. Silas Newton, obviously, is the con man we're talking about. And the other guy is Leo Jabauer, who was a TV repairman, I believe, from Phoenix, Arizona. Now, remember, there are conflicting information about Jabauer because they had the wrong guy the first time. So they had all this information built up and it was the, a different guy completely. And I think a lot of that is bleeding back and forth into this story. Like I told you, I'm still, I'm still actively looking into some of the things you're bringing up right now. So I'm catching up, and I'm getting there. But I, I will say that the, the, the descriptor that you see, you know, traveling con man, it definitely does not fit. I'm not exactly sure what does fit, but they certainly weren't two low-level, two-bit con guys, and they're. For there being a big con here, they certainly didn't get anything out of it, nor did they seem to think that part through. So I'm not, there's some stuff there that still needs to be weeded out before, for me anyway, before I make some kind of decision on how I feel about it. Well, before I let that go, let me, let me just say this. It seemed to me that they were, they created the idea of the crash saucer so that they could convince investors in the piece of equipment they had that would allow them to detect oil deposits far beyond below ground. And it was the alien technology that was supposedly giving him them that ability. And that would have been part of the con. Uh, the, the fact that it didn't pan out is not an excuse to disbelieve the story. I think that um, uh, when you take a look at all of this stuff, and it was J.P. Kane from the San Francisco Chronicle who pretty well blew the story out of the water back in 1952 after the book uh, behind the flying saucers came out so i'm i've you know i've looked at this i've heard i've heard kane's speech about this whole thing uh, a couple of times it's uh, out there on the internet i believe so that i'm 
quite dubious of this crash, especially because there's no newspaper articles that relate to it. And a number of people who lived in Aztec in 1948 said it never happened. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. That's that's like people like your friend. Um, I get that a lot of that information comes from your friend Monty. I take it about the people not talking about it. But, not just him, but Carl Lorenzen. Um, when this whole thing blew up again in the mid 1970s, when Robert Carr came out with his article that said the Aztec UFO crash was real, and then a fellow named Mike McClellan did an article for UFO Universe, I believe it was, that said you know the Aztec crash is a hoax. But Carl Lorenzen had looked into it, and she had talked to the sheriff, who the guy who was sheriff in 1948, who said it didn't happen, mm -hmm. and talked to a number of other people who said it didn't happen. So it's not just Monty Shrivers whose information we're looking at. It's a number of other people who have investigated the case several times over the years, and they were never to get to the point where they can say, yeah, this event took place. Yeah, and I know that too, and I'm I'm including all of that when I as I'm looking into this, I'm looking into all of that too, and I'm trying to get as caught up as I can. But I guess that's my my biggest point is that all of that stuff exists, and it all has to be taken into account. But at this point, for me and my and the way I'm coming into it, I cannot deny that something huge happened that morning, and I and that is pretty much a verifiable thing. And it and it and it's more than just coincidence that these uh, directives that were issued were all having to do with flying discs and unconventional aircraft. And at that same time, the General Staff Intelligence Group got involved, and the same morning, and it had to do with unidentified object and unconventional aircraft and reporting it to them. And so there's definitely an anchor, you could in quotes, of a flying disc event that does seem to match that date, March 25th, 1948. So my position is where I'm coming at right now. I'm trying to see if there's any of this older information, and, and including other stuff that we haven't mentioned, that, does, that seems to continue to corroborate that, or as you're thinking, you know, it's, it's all gonna crumble. But something definitely happened. I mean, General Spots was wigged out. There's no doubt about it. And the other people in the national security arena just could not figure out what he and General Chamberlain seemed to know that nobody else seemed to know. But do we have any firsthand witnesses to the event in Aztec? People who were there and said, yes, I saw this, other than Newton and, and Jabauer, who were talking about how the whole thing transpired. Yeah, well, see, that's my point, because there's like, you know, I I phoned uh, Scott uh, Ramsey a couple of times and asked him his opinion and if the witnesses he's talked to, which ones did he say stood out the most for him that, that was most credible? And uh, he mentioned this guy named Farley, Ken Farley. So I'll just, just use him just as an example. Yes, he's, you know, if you just look at this alone, you're, you can shoot holes all kinds, in all kinds of places with eyewitness testimony. But that's really my point is I can, I can get a foundation that something happened and we're going from there. Now, this person happened to say, without knowing the information I have, he happened to say that that was the day it happened. And he was sure because he was traveling that day. So it was in his mind. And there are a couple other people. So that's important to me because they're specifically saying it was the 25th. And that's the anchor date that I'm working with. Well, let me uh, interrupt here again because we're going to have to take a break. The website is www our unconventionalskies.com. I've learned how to read this thing. Uh, is the website you can take a look at, and some of the information is up there. The documents you're referring to is up there as well. You can take a look at those. My website is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. There'll be uh, information about uh, my book, uh, Roswell in the 21st Century, Encounters in the Desert, if you'd like to take a look at those, and the upcoming book, which will be out in just a couple of weeks, the Best of Project Blue Book. Uh, we will be back right after this with more discussion with Robert Colford, so stick around. Audience, if you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, 
or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, X-Zone Radio TV. For more information on the X-Zone Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.xzoneradiotv.com or www.xzonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Join Patty Conklin and Healing Within Radio each week. More than entertainment, Healing Within offers educational, useful tools for everyday life. Listen for help overcoming fear, anxiety, and depression. Patty knows about eliminating cancer, MS, dementia, Parkinson's, and a host of illnesses that we face every day. Life can be good. Life is good. All you need are simple tools to start changing your life. Start right now by visiting pattyconklin.com, P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N. No matter where you are in the world, you can work with Patty through Skype, phone, or in person, visiting one of her retreats in Georgia. Visit pattyconklin.com today or call our offices at 404-474-0086. That's pattyconklin.com or call 404 404- Four seven four zero zero eight six. Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who would like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. I'm sitting here discussing the Aztec UFO crash with Robert Colford. When we left, uh, we were talking about witnesses to these events. You mentioned a guy named Farley. Uh, did Scott Ramsey talk to him personally? Yes. He, uh, in fact, he was trying to get a hold of Bill Steinman, I guess, and Bill had already published his book by the time this guy came on the scene. So he was, and essentially they transferred him to Scott, who was coming in to the investigation and he took it from there and he was able to do some interviews with him. Let me let me identify the players again. Bill Steinman wrote a book called UFO Crash at Aztec, which is not the best reference book mm-hmm. available. Uh, there's a lot of problems with that. And some of the conclusions he draws based on his investigations in Aztec, and I'll give him credit for going to Aztec and talking to people, but he went in with a bias that there was something there and people were lying to him about their involvement and that sort of thing. But um, so Steinman put Farley in touch with Scott Ramsey. Is that correct? That's from what I can gather. That's the way it happened. Yeah. But didn't Farley say he was working at the El Paso, working on the El Paso uh, natural gas pipeline at the time? Um, I've got to get Scott's book and check that, but I'm not, I'm not clear, you know, if you know more, it sounds right, but, uh, I know there was some question about the gas company name and, uh, I, I'm not the expert in that department. I would, unfortunately, I'd have to, we'd have to make a party call and get well, somebody I, else in here. Uh, the expert on that is Monty Shriver. Okay. And 
I'm, I'm going with what he told me, and I have no reason to disbelieve what he said, uh-huh. was the natural, the, the El Paso natural gas pipeline wasn't there in 1948 and didn't, wasn't built or constructed until 1950, which would suggest that maybe Farley's memory is slightly off on that sort of thing. Could be, but you remember, I'm going with an anchor first. I got the date. I know something happened on this date. And these coincidences of other people telling stories of something that they know happened on that date, you know, I'm just paying attention to them. And I'm trying to make a judgment like you are. Well, let's let's take a look at that kind of coincidence. Didn't um, the MJ-12 document hang everything on the date of uh, December 6, 1950, because there was a big flap over some kind of an unidentified flying object coming toward the United States at that time. Right. Um, and so we have that coincidence, but that was actually manipulated by uh, Robert, or I'm sorry, Todd Zeckel, um, changing the date from what uh, Willingham, who was the man who supposedly saw the thing, uh, gave him from, from moving it from 1948 to 1950. My mm-hmm. point simply is this, that we have a date that looks like it's, we've got a good anchor date, uh, J- December 6, 1950, and when we pursue it far enough, we discover that that's been manipulated by a guy who has a bias. So can't we, can't we say that, that while you've got a good date here, that it is just a coincidence, or that somebody picked that date simply because it was the date of, the, um, of this flap in 1948. Right. And that's exactly one of the things I'm trying to look at when I look at these witnesses. Is there a possibility, which is why I'm trying to find the best of these people. And did any of them ever talk to each other and work out this date? And those are important things for me to know, because like I said, I am sure something happened and it had to do with flying discs. And not only that, it was important enough to make General Spots declare an emergency, which we didn't even have the capability of doing what he wanted. I mean, we got it was that. a really big we deal. That. What's we up? Got that? We got that. We understand that. But, but my point is... are simply, I, I, I'm like you. I'm looking at them. I'm, I'm assessing the same things you are. I asked that question. Could they have made up the date after the fact? And it doesn't seem logical because it took me a lot of work to find this out on my own in air defense history research. But let so, me ask you, let me put it to you this way. What was the date that uh, of the crash that's listed in behind the flying saucers they don't have a date the the best we got is summer of 1949 is when they're talking about it in the backseat of a you're talking about aztec yes yeah they're they're in the backseat of their car talking and that's in the summer of 1949 and he says he refers to it in the past tense that's about as close as we get other than their notes when when newton was speaking when he did that famous speech in uh denver uh his notes are available, and I saw a photograph of one of his his note his note that he was keeping up there. In in a margin, it was written summer of 1949, but it couldn't have been because, like I said, in Scully's own book, there when they're having this conversation, it was the summer of 1949. So well, that's I, as close as you can get to it as a date from Scully. I will I will help you out here because I think Scully published some information about it in Daily Variety in I think early 1949. Okay. Or maybe late 1948, but we can we can trace the story back that far, but the point is we don't have the March 25th date till sometime later. And I know that. Yeah, exactly. And my position is secure without him stating and this is where I'm going to stay is uh, I'm coming at it from the other side like a shadow looking into light because I don't all I know is something happened, and it definitely was a big deal. And a, a disc flying, flying saucer landing on a mesa in New Mexico, that would be a big deal, and that that would answer what I'm seeing, I guess you could say, if I'm going to play that game, which I do. But it's true. Uh, that story just happens to match perfectly with the things that I'm seeing that occurred afterward. And that's not the only thing that happened on March 25th. There were some other things. I, I sent you an article about that plane crash, which is... Interesting, I'm looking into that because of the July 18th incident that happened after Roswell. You know, you remember that P-80 crashed? Yes. And then it just so happens on the morning of the 25th, a P-80 crashed, and it was reported that he was on a routine training mission. But that was one thing I wanted to ask you. I thought you might be a person to ask. 
we know that spots declared this emergency and it was a huge deal. Would there still be some kind of simple training mission going on in the skies that this guy would be conducting and getting in an accident like this? You know, uh, how logical is that? Would that be, is that okay? I mean, that's yeah, not that's, a that's fine. I don't, I don't see a problem with that. And here's why the training mission would have been scheduled long before spots declared the emergency, whatever it was. And so the flight may have gone off. Mm -hmm. And so I, they, they may have then uh, requested him to return. Uh, the Walesville, New York thing from 1954, where the airplane crashed into a, a intersection in Walesville, New York, and killed four people. The uh, idea was the, the guys were up on a routine training mission when they were diverted to an active air defense mission, and that was where they were chasing the the balloon. So these things these things happen, and I don't have a problem with them, the guy being on a routine training flight at that time. It, it it doesn't bother me at all, especially when you're looking at the timing of, of all of these sorts of things. Right. Well, there's the other, because it could play into this. The One of the other things that happened was off the coast of San Francisco, that same Thursday morning, what was assumed to be a enemy submarine was sighted in the water. And there was a big to-do about that. So, well, And that and that might explain part of what, what you're talking about there. But uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the... Um, the object and that sort of thing, and how the descriptions have sort of mutated over over the uh, over the years. What's what's the first story you you have on that? What what did they see on that mesa? Uh, the best is what I'm doing is combining them all, including the Ogden research and another couple that did some work uh, that called it the farming incident, Farmington incident instead of Aztec. And uh, Wilkie Connors' art articles in Space Warp that right before the Wyandotte Echo published their stuff, Wilkie Connor seemed to be on the track of the same information. And they all pretty much refer to it as a disk with, with the slight dome in the center. So, yeah, but uh, what, did, what, did the, what did the occupants look like? That is never fully described in any of the material. I think the closest good description is the one the Wyandotte Echo where the OSI republished it in their files in the Blue Book documents, where it describes them as all blonde, hair, hairless, or blonde. I think it referred to them as blonde with perfect teeth or something like that. Uh, diminutive. I think those are the clearest ones that cross over each other. The rest are all standalones Scully, on their own. Doesn't Scully describe them, or through Newton describe them, as perfectly formed humans, although they're... Uh, Small of stature, wearing clothing from the 1890s with the perfect teeth, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I believe so, yes. And that it's, they were from Venus? Yeah, but you know, that doesn't bug me because you look at all the talk and the writings of that time, Venus was blamed for everything in science fiction and in science. And Venus was still one of those things that we didn't really quite have all the information about, but it was tantalizing enough that somebody could have come from there. So, I mean, everything was Venus back then. Well, and that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And uh, they thought Venus was a um, tropical world, and that explained <laughs> all the clouds around it. Right, and exactly. It was, it was probably the most likely place for life to have developed in the solar system, other than Earth, of course. It was uh, either Mars or Venus, always. Mars and yes, Venus. Absolutely. But my point simply is uh, the descriptions were of not humanoids, but actual human creatures that just happened to be small. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of morphed from that time into something else. And that's always very worrisome when you're talking about these stories. But let me say one more time, the website is www.ourunconventionalskies.com. And there's documents up there and you can peruse those yourself. I'll have a link to it in my blog here uh, when I get around to writing that. I've got a book due here shortly, which is causing me all kinds of aggravations. My blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I have on that um, information about all kinds of things. I'll link to some other information about Aztec on there that I've, I've published in the past. And we must mention that uh, we're on the Exome Broadcast Network, xzbn.net. And there's some great programming available so go to the uh, X-Zone Broadcast Network um, website and take a look at that. We will be back right after this with Robert Colford.
If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar's sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simultv, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today, Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Memorable dynamic presentations are a not so secret weapon in the business world. Do you have a powerful message that must be shared, but you haven't found a way to deliver that message? Do you want to be known as a top public speaker who gets amazing results? Are you ready to create and deliver your powerful message? Thomas Hydes can help you create and deliver your speech to get the results you desire. Visit IconQuality.com. Did you expect your business to flourish, but instead it plateaued or didn't get off the ground yet? Would you like to achieve massive goals and discover new sources of income within your business? When you're ready to experience that type of success with fast results, Cindy Hendricks is the business coach for you. Her work with entrepreneurs and business owners has been life-changing. To get you and your business where you want to be, go to imaginemoresuccess.com. Has the fear of public speaking stalled your business or personal life? What would you give to develop and maintain supreme confidence? Have an invaluable private program to always perform at your best. Imagine how you would feel. You can have all that and so much more today with Thomas Hyde's life-changing course called Number One Fear Unleashed. Visit numberonefear.com and be liberated from your fear of public speaking. Once again, I'm here with Robert Colford. We're talking Aztec, New Mexico, the UFO crash on 25 March 1948, as best we can. We've been talking about the um, descriptions of the beings supposedly found. But what we really haven't gotten to, I'm afraid, is eyewitness testimony. With Roswell, we were able to find any number of people who were actually there. We could prove they were actually there 
who actually had something to say that was corroborated by other people. Yeah, we got a bunch of people who are making crap up and causing us all kinds of aggravations. But there are people there who were able to talk about it. We were able to document it through the newspapers. Um, the, the information went out over the, the wire. So we had some good information like that. But with Aztec, we don't have any of that. We don't have any good firsthand witnesses. You mentioned Farley, but I think that there's some credibility problems there. I don't know of anybody else that really has come forward as a firsthand witness, and we're now probably not going to have that happen. But we don't have any really good firsthand witnesses for the Aztec case, nor was it mentioned in the newspapers. Yeah, well, I've made my position clear. I'm looking into some of that stuff currently. Now, you know, I'm coming in from the other direction, even though I used to believe the hoax story because of what I'm seeing. I'm seeing evidence for something big, and, and it seemed to only be general spots and a little bit of the intelligence group with the general staff corps, and they seem to know something nobody else knew. But so. you, have, you have nothing that links it to Aztec. Other than that date so far, no. Other than the date, which is could be coincidental. Which and what I'm asking about incident. what I'm asking about specifically, there was nothing mentioned in any of the newspapers in the local area. There were there are no firsthand witnesses that I find pretty to be per, particularly credible. Yes, I have trouble with English periodically, uh, particularly credible. We don't have a body of documentation from the news media or other people, and, and the people who lived in Aztec at the time, not only Monty Shriver, but the sheriff. Uh, I think there's a guy named Ed Dunning who was there that, that Bill Steinman interviewed and said, no, it didn't happen and leave me alone. Uh, we don't have good, robust testimony directing us to Heart Canyon and this, and this crash disc. No. And I admit all that, and uh, I don't want to pull anybody's wool over anybody's eyes that I'm not saying that, but my position is clear that something happened, and it. I did my best, and what's interesting is the CIA did their best, too. Between, between March 5th and March 15th of 1948, they were indeed worried. They wanted to know what the Russians were doing. By the 15th, uh, documents had been published by the CIA that reaffirmed that there's no way the Russians are about to attack us. There's, they're not going to be ready to for a little while longer. We'll get back to you. It was kind of like, especially with uh, one of their major releases, I think it's 4448, ORE 2248, which put it all in summary. That makes it all the more strange that Gen General Spots was so big that he declared an emergency and blamed it on the Russians because they were not about ready to attack the United States. It would have been ridiculous for them to do it. We yes, we all, we all know that. We've got that. But, but this brings up another question. You citing the CIA, but Spots would have been using uh, uh, Air Force intelligence and other intelligence functions. Maybe he got something that the CIA didn't have, and, and clearly something that would be wrong, but, but somebody had mentioned something or some intelligence function came through intelligence information came through that suggested something was about to happen and that he was responding to that information that turned out to be erroneous. Maybe, but uh, it is true he was he was the air staff chief and he would have had air intelligence people. But remember, the CIG itself was an army creation. It was an and when the CIA became the CIA, the CIG became more blended to some of it became blended into the general staff's intelligence group. So we, it, they kind of all work together a lot more than people think, you know, as far as the intelligence services. And they all rely on the Intelligence Advisory Board and Intelligence Advisory Committee. They tried their hardest to get the CIA, what the CIA was intended to do. They all tried, Air Force, Army, to, to work together to get it happening. And it is interesting that it's the General Staff's Intelligence Group and General Spots together. That are in this. But here's here's the thing. Here's the thing about working in intelligence. You don't want one source. You don't want to get all your intelligence just from the CIA. 
You want to get it from multiple sources because something the CIA missed, somebody else might have picked up, which would be, be important to you. And all I'm saying is the CIA is saying, well, there's no problem with the Russians. And somebody else might have picked up something that suggested maybe the Russians are doing something and, and reported that to, to General Spots. Well, that's what the whole thing about the March war scare was. It started on the 5th. General Lucius Clay sent a memo to General Chamberlain with essentially that kind of in mind, and it did cause a temporary stir. That's kind of my point. We we had already gone through that, came back out of it, which there was multiple people involved in finding out because they were worried, are the Soviets going to attack us? So multiple intelligence people came together, and they had many meetings building up to that 15th date when they published, no, they're not going to, there's no way they're going to attack. So I'm saying that we already kind of went through that wave and we're coming out of it again when the 25th happened. But the so, real, the real point, the real problem here is you've got an interesting bunch of documents from March 25th, but nothing that links it to Aztec. Other than that date, which is why I'm saying that in, that date is important for me to find out if any of these okay, witnesses. I got are that. Worthy. I got that. The problem is, we have no witnesses in Aztec that are credible that we know of, first-hand witnesses. We have no documentation from Aztec in the form of newspapers. We have witnesses who lived there at the time, Monty Shriver being one of them, saying nothing happened. Uh, the sheriff from 19, 1948 uh, was interviewed by Carl Lorenzen, um, and he said nothing happened. I think his brother said nothing happened. A number of other people who have been interviewed who lived there in 1948 said nothing happened. How do we get around all of that? Oh, we'll have to see. I'm just going to keep going and pick pick up each rock as I get to it and log everything I can, and we'll see what happens. I've, I've found a lot just by doing what I've been doing already. So I'm just going to keep doing this. Uh, I, I hope we have enough time, though. Real quickly, we didn't cover that fake MJ-12 document that was released a couple of years ago but that's another point if we can make it really quick because you got just the, you got about three minutes one of the ways we knew that was fake among other things but is what i found here about this emergency because whoever made that fake document pulled a lot of information from bill steinman's book like plagiarized it to make that document and part of it was that general marshall declared an emergency and it was it was negated that same day well we know that was not true there was an emergency declared, but it was general spots and it lasted till early April. So that alone, that would not be a fake, I mean, that would not be a real document because it had fake information in it. So obviously it was not a real classified memo of any kind. And I think you've just proved my point here. Mm -hmm. But uh, where, we, where we stand now, as I understand it, you're doing your research, you've pinned down a date that you think is authentic, and you're looking for additional information to either, I guess, confirm or deny that there was a crash in at, at Aztec. You don't have any firm evidence that anything took place there other than some, shall we say, rumors? Yeah, for me, not as much rumors because I didn't know any of this other stuff but first. And so it's kind of, for me, it's just a question of, wait a second, that's that's the date those people said you know, and so I'm. I feel I'm obligated to look at it from this perspective because those people just happen to know that that was the date, and something did happen on that date. So I want to see if I can find out if they cross over and if it's good enough that I can stick by it. So we have a date that uh, seems to be interesting, but we have really nothing much else. No, but it's a big deal. It's a big. Um, it's a huge question mark because the Russians were not about to attack us. I guarantee you. So something spooked them, something big, something really big. Well, I think we're just about out of time, Robert. I'd like to thank you for joining us on A Different Perspective. I appreciate the insight you've brought to us about Aztec, although I don't think we've really resolved much of anything other than there's a mystery about the date and what may have spooked uh, the people in the Pentagon. Yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, the time. Well, as I say, you know, it's uh, www.ourunconventionalskies.com. Google Chrome is the way you get through to it. Uh, the regular Google search engine didn't bring it up, but Google Chrome will. And uh, you can take a look at the documentation and the other information that is there for uh, those of you who are interested in pursuing this a little bit further. I would like to point out here once again, because I can, 
that um, March 1st, I'm sorry, April 1st, my book, the um, project, the best of Project Blue Book will be available. And I've gone through a lot of the cases. I use the Project Blue Book files as a stepping off point. Here's what Project Blue Book said about a specific case. Here's what we've learned in the decades since Project Blue Book closed. And there's a lot of the cases where information was developed after Blue Book closed about some of these classic cases. Level Land springs to mind immediately, of course, uh, because of what I was able to learn long after Blue Book uh, closed. And it's a, it'd be an interesting look at how the uh, investigation transpired. I have another book that I'm working on, which is called UFOs, the Deep State, and the Air Force OSI, which is a look at uh, some of the manipulation of that information, and it should be out later this year. Once again, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and I'll have more information about what uh, Robert and I were talking about and some links to other uh, information I've published in the past. You have been listening to a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. So keep listening at xzbn.net, and thanks for tuning in.